0: Please stand for the of God's word. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ephesians 2. This is this picking me up at all? Can you hear I, me? I can hear you fine, okay. but I'm right. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit, the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the
1: Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Stephanie. Over here. Thank you, Stephanie, and thank you, Taylor, for um, leading worship. And um, thank you. It's been encouraging for me personally just to see um, all of your help in action. Um, my head is f- like the, the bees are just buzzing in my head on Sunday afternoons, and there's fewer of them buzzing now <laughs> because you're helping um, with all the things that need to happen. So I'm grateful for that. Okay, got recording device going. So people that aren't here, um, So, have you ever felt out of place in this world? Have you ever felt out of place? (laughs) Feel free to share a moment, experience, time, anybody? There can be some, sometimes these moments are very funny, (laughs) comical moments. Sometimes they're very sad. Um, They're never fun. Right? To feel out of place. That's not fun. I've mentioned um, in here this the, the, the move in middle school. I don't I haven't taught I mean for three times I think I've mentioned it in this little Bible study. So obviously it had a very important impact on my life. Um, but I can remember feeling really out of place in that in that time. Um, but anyway Anybody want to share? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm. I'm curious. <laughs> What'd you say, Kenzie? Taking pictures during the <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, kind of an outside observer. Um, yeah, no, that's good. That's a good one. Thank you. Thank you for breaking the awkward silence that we had (laughs) appreciate that they say after like 40 seconds people in a group setting like this will just they just can't handle it anymore so somebody will say something (laughs) so um well it's common right it's it's a universal human experience um saint augustine said that our hearts are made for God and they are restless until they find their rest in him. That we were were made for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. I'm gonna make my way over to the the whiteboard. I can get untangled. Um, So our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So you can imagine, um, here, here's, here's the, the ideal, right? God and rest. Our rest is only to be found in God, okay? But here's the, here's the problem. Here's God, and as we learned in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, we are. We're not here. In fact, we're, we're dead is the language. So we're, we're separated from God, spiritually dead, Paul says. And not only that, but we are on a um, a fast flight away from God because Paul said in those first few verses of chapter two, we were we were enslaved. we were following the powers of this world, the powers of Satan. And the powers of the flesh, which drive us, all, all of those things with compounding force, drive us further and further and further away from God. So our heart's desire and longing is to be in God. But our heart's actions uh, is to be away from him, apart from Christ. You could... You could um, Think of it this way: if if you um, if, if if you have a if there's a tenseness in a relationship that you have with someone, and all of a sudden that person walks into a room, you feel a bit unsettled in that moment. You feel a bit on edge. Anxiety might be stirred in you. Okay. We've offended holy God, and here's the thing: He's everywhere, right? He's omnipotent, or He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And do you know what kind of anxiety this produces in us? What kind of unsettledness this creates in our hearts? So we feel. It, this is the image that comes to mind in my head. It's as though we are. Um, it's as though we are. We are flying down a mountain. We, we've slipped off the mountain and we're, we're flying down it at a quick pace. And we are just trying, we're just clawing and scraping and fighting for some kind of hold that we can get to stop the slide. Okay? And so here, here's some of the things that we, we do to slow the slide down. There's probably a couple of tendencies that we have. For some of us, we, we slow the slide down, our, our, our uh, spiritual slide into spiritual oblivion, right? We slow that down through um, good works for some of us. Maybe if we could just get if we just get into church a lot and go to church all the time, then we could feel better about this spiritual slide away from God. Or if we um, do really good at work, if we please our boss, then we can feel better about this slide. Um, or if we do good in school, or if we find success in whatever gifts we have, sports, or whatever it is, there's all these things that we do to try to help make us feel better about this this alienation that we have from God. There's another approach, that's sort of the good works approach. There's another approach that you might think of as like the self-medicating approach, and that is um, using things like um, sex, drugs, alcohol, alcohol, just entertainment to n- medicate ourselves against our unsettledness okay so some of us do it kind of by doing good things and finding success others of us do it by doing things that are so called bad but they're 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 both just desperate attempts to try to slow the slide down now here's the thing those little footholds that we try to find sex drugs alcohol Work success, um, church attendance, all those little things that we do um, while they slow the slippery slope of our spiritual spiral out of control from God. They slow that down a bit. Here's the, the converse is true, though. This is what they also do. And this is the bad. This is it's bad altogether. But this is what happens when we do that. We grease the tracks. For our, for, for our alienation with neighbor. All of those little footholds that we get only bring us satisfaction to the extent that they make us feel better than that group that doesn't go to church or that group that's not good at work or that group that's a bunch of prudes that never has sex or whatever it is, right? To the extent that we perch ourselves up above Um, or feel better about ourselves because of all those things. We're perching ourselves up above others, okay? Well, as we've seen, you could think of Paul in these first two chapters of Ephesians. He's like, I've mentioned this before, he's like an eagle soaring, this Armitage Robinson quote. He's like an eagle that's just kind of circling uh, in its boundless freedom, uncertain where exactly to go. And what, what this eagle has been doing, what Paul has been doing as this eagle, he, he's got his target on Christ and he's just sort of hovering all around, almost in like a symphonic way where you know symphony kind of keeps going on these themes over and over again, but in variations. He's, he's, he's like getting closer and closer and closer to this target of what Christ has done. He started big, chapter one, before the foundation of the world. He prays a prayer that we would know the gospel He explains uh, the gospel and the work of Christ in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Looked at that last week. And now he's getting into what this means horizontally in our relationships with others. So with that bit of introduction, let's begin looking at this passage. He says, verse uh, 1, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision, right? Um, by what is called the circumcision, the Jews. The Jews called the, the the Gentiles the uncircumcision. And it was not like a friendly term. It was like you dirty, uncircumcised Gentiles. That was the attitude. Um, and you, the circumcision, and then Paul says, which is made in the flesh by hands. Right. Paul's saying, look, and you, you Jews also, you take circumcision, you know, the, the work of Christ has an impact on the, the, the necessity of circumcision. And he's saying, which is made in the flesh by hands, as if to say, remember, the circumcision of your flesh was to point to a circumcision of the heart. And that has come by work of the spirit only in Christ, apart from the circumcision of the flesh. Okay. Remember, Paul says, that you were at that time, you Gentiles at Ephesus, were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so. All the way back to Abraham, God has been making these wonderful promises to a people. But as Gentiles, we didn't have access to those promises. And as a result, we were without hope and without God. What happens when you're without hope and without God? When you're hopeless and godless, what happens? What happens to a culture in that sort of situation? Well, that culture that's hopeless and without God, tends to get real nervous about the future like twitchy when it starts thinking about the future unsettled about the future um you know climate change is going to destroy us all in 30 years or our technology is going to destroy us all in 15 years you know blade runner that's what it's going to be like it's going to be this awful existence think of all the dystopic uh, pieces of literature and movies that, that we, we've we seen just even in the last, like, 40 years. This ain't, your, this ain't uh, George Jetson's view of the future that we have. Because we're growing increasingly hopeless and, and godless. And so as a result, we're very nervous about the future. But here's something else that happens. You also, when you're hopeless and godless, you also get very nostalgic about the past. So, like... Um, You know, if we could just like make, if we can make America great again, if we could just get back to 1952 America, right? People, they worked hard and it was the greatest generation was coming into adulthood. We just get back to that. Um, So you get nervous about the future, nostalgic about the past. I mean, think about the Hebrews in the wilderness experience. Right? It did not take. They, so they're delivered from Egypt from their 400-year enslavement in Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and they start getting a little hopeless, and they start worrying: Was God with us? Is God? It doesn't feel like He's with us. We're kind of getting hungry here, and then they start longing for their enslavement. We had food in Egypt. We had our slave portions, and and not only that, they, they, they start longing for the graves in Egypt. You know, what's the one thing anybody knows about ancient Egypt, you know, five-year-old and up? They had graves, right? They had a lot of them, and they were pretty impressive. And they keep saying, were there not any graves in Egypt? Did you bring us out in the wilderness to just die in the middle of the wilderness heat? Right? They're getting nostalgic about the past. So, um, in short, what Paul is saying is that at one time, you Gentiles, which is the majority of his audience at Ephesus and which is, I'm guessing the majority of us as well. You were separated, alienated, strangers without hope and without God. So remember that feeling of alienation that you had, that moment when you felt out of place in this world. Okay. It's that multiplied exponentially for us apart from Christ. And then we get another, but. Another one of those important buts. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, so. Uh, Paul is making a reference to the dividing wall of hostility. He's making reference to a wall in Jerusalem. There was uh, the temple had like three major courts. There was the court of priests in the inner innermost court. There was the court of men, Jewish men. There was the court of women, Jewish women. And then there was an outer court where no Gentile could pass. You had to stay outside of that outer court. In fact, there were signs. The, both Greek and Latin signs all around that court that said Gentile, it said trespassers will be not prosecuted executed if you pass that court and you're a Gentile, you're dead as far as we're concerned and and Jews and Gentiles hated each other, I mean Gentiles believed the Jews were the, well just I mean, you, any world history is a, is a lesson in how Gentile-Jew relationships have not always been very good, right? Gentiles believe that the Jews were the, the fuel for the fires of hell. So not a great relationship between these two groups. in fact, Ephesus knows this because one of one of the members in Ephesus, one of the Christians in Ephesus, Trophimus, in, in Acts chapter 21 is um, he and Paul are in Jerusalem. And there is a full blown riot that begins. You can read this in Acts 21. That that begins because it is charged that Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, was brought past the outer wall and they want to kill Paul and uh, Trophimus as a result of that. So like this is kind of they hear wall of hostility. This is this is like what they're working. This is what they're thinking about. And what uh, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has broken down that wall of the between Jew and Gentile. How did he do it? Look, verse uh, 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. Okay. Um, By abolishing the law of commandments, this is referring to ceremonial laws that were um, that Jews embraced at God's command to separate themselves from the world, to separate themselves um, from the Gentiles. Now, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, sort of have like a magnetic pull of the Gentiles. But what it you know, what inevitably happened is those laws became the perch. Right, the perch that we talked about. I'm better than than you, dirty Gentile. And um, he abolished that. Christ fulfilled those things, and he he abolished that. Continuing, verse sixteen, making peace, and he might reconcile both of us, Jew and Gentile alike, to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. And, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Right. You who were far off Gentiles and you who were near Jew. And in verse 18, notice the Trinitarian nature of, of this verse. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one Holy Spirit to the father. All right. Father, son, spirit. Um, and so we now belong. We, we Gentiles belong with Jews on equal footing as a result of Christ, who's made peace with both Jew and Gentile between God and then Jew and Gentile relations. Verse 19. We now belong. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are. Fellow citizens. This is like kingdom language. People are citizens of kingdom, of a kingdom. And in God's kingdom, in God's economy, Jew and Gentile are fellow citizens. And then he shifts to a family, a familial uh, metaphor. We are with the saints and members of the household of God, right? We're all members of the same household. We're brothers and sisters um, in Christ, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so Paul is saying God is taking little uh, Jews who he's had for. thousands of years under his loving care and covenant promises but he's also bringing in Gentiles from far all over the world every tribe every tongue and he's grafting them in to his body to build up for himself out of these living stones these individuals a temple where he can reside and we talked about this in the fall you may you may recall Ezekiel has this vision of the temple having this little trickle of water that turns into a stream that turns into a river that brings healing to everything that it touches. Trees grow up big alongside this river. The Dead Sea uh, that's, that's dead because it's so salty, it has no life, there's nothing that can live in it. Uh, when this river hits it, it reverses that tide of death and it makes the Dead Sea teeming with life. This is what Ezekiel's describing. And so that's the vision and that that captures the imagination of Israel, because at the Feast of Booths, they started a a habit, a ritual on the last day. They would pick up uh, buckets of water and carry them up to the top of the temple and pour them out on the floor of the temple um, to anticipate the day when God would bring pour forth this river. And while that's happening, John chapter seven, I think it's verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, I tell you the truth out of your hearts, the people that believe in me will flow rivers of living water, which makes sense because look, we're the temple now and the spirit dwells in us. And God is is working out through us not just reconciliation of individuals before God. Yes, that's true. But also reconciliation horizontally. Different groups that should never be together are now together because they have this common union in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And notice he always explains it. He Throughout the New Testament, and throughout Paul's writings in particular, he says, God's grace has come to you in Christ. Therefore, eliminate divisions among you. Therefore, eliminate hostility that exists within you. Right? Okay. So, we've, we've seen um, the, the. You can think of it this way the slain one, Christ. Christ slain slays in two directions. He slays the enmity that existed between us and God, right? The vertical enmity and wrath of God. But he also slays the horizontal enmity that exists between people. I mean, the cross is actually like a symbol for what it produces, how it works out horizontally and vertically these purposes the very symbol itself. So, I mean, I guess the question would be like, where's the enmity? Where do we see enmity? Nationally, politically, globally, within families, within spouses, within parents and, and children. How, how can the work of Christ squelch the enmity that exists between us. I want us just to consider that for just a moment and I'm going to move back over to the microphone and I'm going to take this microphone off of stand and I'm going to explain everything. That I no, I, I, um, I'm just, yeah. Trying to work, work around it. Okay. Um, the, let's see what I do with that marker. I dropped it. There it is. Okay. So how, how does, how does it do this? How does the work of Christ um, produce this? I'm going to try to explain it a little bit. And this gets back to why we want to be so uh, stubbornly committed to the to the gospel. Can you guys hear me? Okay. If you can hear me, I'm just going to start talking because it's, it's almost more difficult to hold the microphone. Um, so the question is. How can the work of Christ produce this uh, reconciliation between peoples? And I think I've, I've shown this before, but I, I want to show it again. Okay. God, us, separation between the two. The only thing that can bridge the gap between us and God is the cross of Christ. But what often happens is we begin to think that if we, okay, great, I'm saved, but, and so now I'm going to start going to, you know, church all the time, teaching Sunday school. I might even get involved in a church plan. Um, I'm going to, uh, you know, yeah, we're working on our marriage. Like things are getting better, and there's probably like some slip ups, but for the most part, we think of our life as like we're getting closer to God through our. Through our works, through our activity. Can you guys hear me okay at the very back? Okay. Through our activity. Um, In other words, we lean fully upon God's grace to us in Christ when it comes to our justification. But when it comes to our sanctification, our being made more into the image of Jesus, we begin to kind of fall back on a M.O. of works. Now, what happens when we do that is we shrink the work of Jesus in our lives when we're on that kind of plan. And here's another thing we do or another thing that happens. We also get bigger. We begin to think, you know, I'm a pretty good church member, (laughs) like. I've been going to church all my life. Every time the doors are open, I'm there. We begin to really like think we're pretty special. And so we look at the you know, person that maybe shows up on Easter and Christmas, and we think, man, they're not. They, they don't got it going. Or we start thinking ourselves better than um, whoever it is. Okay. What I'm... What I've suggested before is that actually Christian growth looks like us growing in a deeper and more powerful understanding. My whiteboard got too small um, of God's holiness. So imagine a line going like we're, we're, we're becoming more keenly aware of God's holiness, but we're also becoming more keenly aware of our sin. Right. That stench is your sin. Um, our sin gets more repulsive to us. And when that happens. We realize that gap is bigger, and consequently, the love of Christ is greater. The cross is bigger. Which does a number, not just on our hearts, it makes us more um, sanctified in Christ. But it also transforms how we look at our neighbor. right? Because sin is the great equalizer. We're all the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all equally alienated from God. We are all dead. Right. When, when I was, when I was a kid, uh, if you looked at our let me try to illustrate this. We, we've been saved by grace. It's a gift. Lest anyone should boast except boasting in Christ and a gift. The size of, of, of Christ changes how we relate to our neighbor so let me give you an example. When I was, uh, if you look in our photo albums, you'll see at Christmas time, you'll, uh, you'll see a picture of us running, running down the stairs, Christmas morning, running down the stairs to get to the Christmas gifts. And there's a photo of my brother and I, and one of us is like grabbing the pajamas of the other, pulling them back, trying to keep them from getting to those gifts. It's basically a fight happening down the stairs, but that fight is frozen forever in time in our family album. And then you flip the next page and you know what picture is next? My brother and I just joyously hugging each other, holding toys in hands and kind of smiling at the camera. All of the enmity that that declined on the stair produced was washed away magically by G.I. Joe's and footballs and (laughs) the gifts, right? That's what a gift does, especially a gift that comes out of nowhere. That is by grace alone. And that's what Paul's point is. Every time he mentions the the gravity of God's grace towards us, he, he nearly always mentions the social consequences of that. So. Any any comments or questions on any of that passage uh, that we just looked at? I have a few questions as well that I'm, I'm going to ask in a second, but just think about those questions if you have any questions. Why do, why do we judge others? Why do you judge others? I know it's a big group and it's probably daunting to
0: because I want to feel better about myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You want to find a little foothold, right? In your spiritual decline. Um, and, and let me, let me say this too. Yeah. And Taylor, just to, for anybody that couldn't hear that, he said, cause cause we want to feel better about ourselves. That's why we judge others. Um, and, and let me, let me say this when we're, when we are judging others, I think Paul's point. What Paul would say is you're not living consistently in light of the gospel. I mean, how, how does, how does a view of God's holiness the top line over here, how does that impact how judgmental we are towards others? Like a better, a more accurate view of God's holiness. How might that make us less judgmental? People think like Christianity, um, oh, it's judgy, which is like a to- you know, horrible, bad word in our own cultural climate. Like to be, to call somebody judgmental is like, you know, the ultimate smackdown. <laughs> and Christians get that, Christians get that um, claim. I mean, people claim that about Christianity. But how would a view of God's holiness uh, impact how judgmental we are? Any thoughts on that? Or maybe here's here's another question. How might a... Uh, A growing awareness of our sin, a more accurate awareness of our sinful inclinations, how might that um, help us be less judgmental towards others?
0: We're all in the same boat.
1: Yeah. That's good. We're all in the same boat. We are equally alienated from God. And people, you know, here, here's here's what I found. There's some some people have more public sins like their tenants. Maybe they're just angry or they've whatever it is. And then the other, But the scriptures say we are all entangled in a mess of sin. Therefore, you know, love your neighbor. Even when they sin against you because Christ came towards you when you were in that same mess. Here's, here's a, um, I have a kind of a closing thing to ponder. I'm not going to ask you to answer this, but think of a specific person in your life that you're often judgmental toward and be pondering how a bigger view of God's holiness, and a more accurate view of your sin might affect that relationship that you have with that person that you like to judge. How would a a, a bigger realization of this thing over here help you deal with that judgmental attitude towards, towards you? Because the implication is if, for for Paul, if the gospel can bring peace between these two arch enemies, Jew Gentile, then it can bring peace between um, between any any hostility. Two brothers and sisters in Christ, they can come together. And we're gonna have we're gonna have by God's grace, and we pray that we will have people that that um, that come to King's Cross that are different than us. And we want to extend to them the love of Christ, just as Christ came to us. Any final comments or questions or anything before I pray? Okay, I'm going to pray. And um, and then we'll, we can hang out and chat some, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, we, um, we give you thanks for... The good news that we've encountered here just in the first two chapters of Ephesians, the work that Jesus is doing, just how powerful it is, what looked like an accident or a cosmic disaster on the ground actually was the means by which you are reconciling not just individuals, not just tribes and tongues and nations, but you're reconciling all things to Christ. And we are, um, we're so privileged to, to be a part of that as your church, help us to believe it, help us to live well in light of it. We need your spirit to awaken us to these, to these things. And we pray that when folks come to King's cross, that they would, that they would feel welcomed and embraced and um, the love that you have. We can't concoct it or stir it up, but we, we need your spirit to, to do that. And we pray that you would make that alive in us. Um, and we pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.